0: Welcome to the Scriptures are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become very real to us because that allows us to draw more power out of the scriptures and we need that power in our lives. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and this is a short cast where we're going to explore an element of a story that we have in Numbers 13 and 14. And it's one that I've I've kind of been leading up to uh, in a couple of uh, previous episodes And that I think is one of the more important lessons that we can get from the Old Testament. This is one that has spoken very powerfully to me in my life and and has become very real to me. And I think it's an important message that we need to get out to everybody. Uh, And and it's just key and crucial. I'll also just say that uh, I I explored um, this uh, kind of subject and and area with um, Hank Smith and John, by the way, on their podcast, Follow Him. Uh, in depth as well, and uh, so I would encourage you to go and listen to that podcast uh, where you'll get their insights as well as mine, Uh, and I'll I'll have some different things to say about it here so you can kind of get a little bit of a double dose of it uh, as you listen to both, so I would encourage you to do that. In any case, we're going to go to Numbers chapter uh, 13 to begin with, and uh, this is when they've uh, arrived At uh, Kadesh Barnea. So, actually, even before we do that, let me read something from Deuteronomy. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter one, and I feel like this is an incredibly important verse uh, that teaches us something really, really important. But it's easy to miss um, because, partially, because it's all in parentheses, and partially because no one knows uh, where it's talking about, and you have to fit it into this kind of story line. So, we've got in Deuteronomy chapter one, verse two. There are 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. Uh, now, you're saying, okay, that's not important at all. But, but here's the thing. Horeb is another name for Sinai. And Kadesh Barnea is the place where they send the spies in to go and look at the promised land. And they're supposed to go from there into the promised land and inherit the promised land. And so we learn it's an 11 day journey. That's it. 11 days and yet it takes them 40 years before they inherit the promised land. That's, that's pretty significant stuff. Uh, and so I think we want to look at what is it that uh, causes them to make an 11-day journey into a 40-year journey. And as we do this, I want us to keep in mind that this journey, while well, the, the Exodus story and the journey and coming to the promised land is absolutely real, it really happened. Uh, It's all happened in a way that is designed to teach us symbolically about our journey to be with God again, because in my view, the promised land is symbolic of the true promised land. or coming into the celestial kingdom and regaining God's presence, and the time of the wilderness is symbolic of our mortal probation. We've hopefully made a covenant with God. We've left Egypt behind. We've decided I'm not going to be a follower of the world. Or of Egypt, I'm going to follow Jehovah, and we make that covenant you know, symbolically like baptism, like at the Red Sea, and then you go to Mount Sinai, and this is uh, like make, going to the temple and making temple covenants. You've covenanted to follow God, but you still have this journey that you, you continue on as covenant keepers, staying on the covenant path as you're trying to get into the promised land. So let's explore the things that make it difficult for the Israelites. And remember, these are our Israelite ancestors. And so what's difficult for them in this story is going to be difficult for us on our journey to be with God again. So let's explore the things that are difficult for them. One of the things that's continually difficult for them is to to follow the prophet. Uh, We get all sorts of people who challenge Moses and so on. We we had that story and, and, uh, and I've talked about it before in uh, Numbers chapter 12, where Miriam and Aaron challenge moses and miriam is struck with leprosy and um and so on uh so that's that's an important story and i think some symbolism there in challenging the prophet so that's one uh that we're not going to explore in depth but it is worth noting because it is such a problem for us today uh one of the great struggles that israel has is in following the prophet and we're having those struggles today and it doesn't work well for them and it won't work well for us. If we want to get into the promised land rather than wander in a wilderness with fiery serpents and everything else, then we should follow the prophet, all right? But there's another problem that I think is even a bigger problem and we've alluded to it a little bit before, but let's look at it uh, the way it comes to us in Numbers 13 and 14 and then we'll tie it into what with what happened in, in Exodus 19 and 20. So in Numbers 13... They decide they're, they're here at Kadesh Barnea. It's a southern edge of the promised land. It's on, Today, it's like in this area that's right on the border between Israel and Egypt and that kind of Sinai area. And they're supposed to go in there. So they say, well, let's send in some spies to, to see what the land is like, how good it is, and, and how difficult it's going to be to conquer the people in the land. So they choose one spy. from uh, they say, It's a spy that goes on a rec- reconnaissance mission, right? This is really a reconnaissance mission. So there's one spy from each of the tribes, and uh, and we get in verse 17, so this is uh, Numbers 13, verse 17, he says, uh, get you up this way, it's southward, so it's, they're actually going north. That's probably not the, the best translation there for the King James translators. It's the word that means the southern portion of the promised land. The word is Negev, and that's what they call it in Israel today, they call it the Negev. Um, and so it, it means southward or the southern portion if you're in the promised land. All right. But they're actually heading north from where they are. They're just heading up to that southward area right to the negative, the negative. I mean, not the negative, the negative. And so they go up into the mountain and he says to see the land and see the people that dwell therein, in, whether they be stronger, weak, fewer, many. Right. We just want to know what we're getting ourselves into and also see what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad. And what cities they dwell in, whether tents or strongholds, and what the, whether land, whether it be fat or lean, and whether it be wood or not, right? They don't know anything about this place or the people there, and they're about to go in. They'd just like to have an idea, right? So then he says, um, be of good courage and bring of the fruit of land, because it was the time of the first ripe grapes, okay? So they go in, and it gives us the itinerary where they go up, and they make this kind of circle, and they, they come back around. And they see a lot of the, the nice places. Um, and we get in verse 24, the place was called the book Eshcol because of the, of the cluster of grapes, which the children, children of Israel cut down from thence. So they bring back some grapes with them um, and, and they come back uh, and they, they went to um, Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel. And they bring back uh, and show them the fruit of the land. And verse 27, they said, uh, we came uh, unto the land, whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it, right? And they brought some pomegranates and some grapes, and they were huge and beautiful and wonderful. And everyone's like, okay, wow, great stuff, great place. Uh, And I think I've said this before, but just in case I haven't, this metaphor flowing with milk and honey, especially if you're uh, a people who are largely pastoral, right? They rely on their flocks, which is what this group does. If it flows with milk, that means that it's got enough vegetation that springs up naturally that your cows and your goats will give you milk. And if it flows with honey, that means that there are plenty of things that are, are uh, just springing up wildflowers and things like that, uh, that uh, the bees can thrive. So basically, it's a land that can support agriculture is what this says and your flocks. So that's fantastic. So they bring uh, this uh, report that it's great, and it flows with milk and honey, and here's the fruit. But then we get verse 28. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and are very great. Moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. So that means like the really big guys, the giants are uh, the, the, the Anak, right? So, for example, if you go to uh, uh, McDonald's in uh, Israel and you order the Anak drink, that's the giant size drink, right? Um, and and they go on and talk about the different people that are there. Um, And then we get in verse 30, Caleb, who is one of the spies, still the people before Moses, and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are able to overcome it. So you you see, they've said that big guys, big walls. Now, pay attention as you get into the conquest story, how God deals with the big guys and the big walls. But it's a big guys, big walls. Caleb says, let's go do it right basically saying god told us he'd help us do it let's do it but verse 31 but the men that went up with him said we be not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we and they brought up an evil report of the land which they searched under the children of israel saying the land through which we have gone to search it is the land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof and all the people which we saw in it are men of great stature and there we saw the giants the sons of Anak, which come of the giants So they're seeing really big guys and we were in our own side as grasshoppers, and so we were in their their side, right? They're just saying they were, they were huge. So you see the issue. Caleb, and it turns out Joshua as well. So Caleb and Joshua believe God when He says that He can bring them in and help them inherit the Promised Land, and they say, yep, yeah, big guys, it's all right. Let's go do it." The other ten say, "No, no, no. Those guys are too big. We can't do this." And they're absolutely right. On their own. They cannot do it. They're not capable of doing this on their own. That's a very, very valid concern were it not for God. But they actually know that God is able to to conquer great armies. They've seen it. They have firsthand evidence. They have seen the greatest army, greater army than any of those that they've seen in the promised land, destroyed by God. They know it can happen, but they've forgotten or are not keeping in mind God's delivering power and his ability to save them. And so they go on and complain in chapter 14, and they they say, oh, God brought us up here to die, and so on. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's forget about, uh, let's make a captain. Let's forget about Moses and go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces, and they are worried about this. And Joshua and Caleb uh, ran their clothes, and they speak to all the company of Israel, saying, so we're now in chapter 14, verse 7. The land which we pass through to search it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delight in us, which he does because he's, they've said, he said, you're my covenant people, right? Then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord. Neither fear ye the people of the land. You, you see what they're, they're saying? They're saying, if God delights in us, let's not be afraid of them. If God is with us, who can stand against us is really what they're saying, right? So, and at the end of that verse, they say, and the Lord is with us, fear them not. Now, this should say something to them because they've heard this before. They heard fear not in Exodus 14 when they were at the the Red Sea and the Egyptian army came. And that worked out fairly well. But they don't listen this time, verse 10. And all the congregation bade stone them, meaning Caleb and Joshua, with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all of Israel. So they have decided, nope, we're not going to listen to these spies. In fact, let's kill those spies if we need to, because we're not going into the promised land. There's no way that that can work out well for us. And suddenly the the, uh, glory of the Lord comes and everyone knows, oh, God has something to say about this. And this is what God said, verse 11, and I think it's incredibly profound. And the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? Now listen to this phrase. And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have shewed among them. That's He's hit on the core of the problem. They just don't believe God when he says, I can take you into the promised land. I can deliver you. They see the obstacles, and they believe in those more than they believe in God, despite the fact that they have seen God's delivering power. Now, there is a parallel with this that we discussed when we discussed Exodus chapter 19 and 20, when God wants to bring Israel into his presence, and they see the glory of God and the thunder, and they know that without God's help, you can't survive that, but God has said he wants to bring them into his presence, and instead, they say, no, Moses, you go, why should we die, and Moses says, fear not, again, you you keep getting this right, when they uh, uh, are struggling, he says, fear not, which should remind them of God's delivering power that they saw at the Red Sea. But they still choose not to, and as a result, they get the lower law, and this time, when they don't believe, they get um, the 40 years in the wilderness. Now, there's a reason it's 40 years in the wilderness, and I don't know if it's exactly 40. What it really is, is it's long enough for those who don't believe to die off. And so this, in a way, is a natural consequence. What's happening is God is saying, okay, this generation, despite everything I've done for them, despite everything I've shown them, isn't seeming to progress to where they truly believe me. So instead of saying, here's the parallel. Moroni says, strip yourselves of all unbelief. God is saying, I'm going to strip you of all unbelievers. Right. And think of the symbolism, because they are, as a corporate body, Israel is symbolic of us and our journey to be with God again. And that was true at Mount Sinai, where God wanted to bring them into his presence, which is symbolic of when we really get to come into his presence. I mean, they really would have, but when we get to come and go no more out in the celestial kingdom, but they refuse to believe he could do it. And that parallels here when he wants to bring them into the promised land, which is symbolic of coming into the celestial kingdom and being in God's presence. And again, they don't believe that he can do it and they refuse to do it. Uh, And so God is going to strip them of all unbelievers and raise up a generation that has known nothing but survival because of God, right? There's no way to get by without trusting in God. And that generation will have enough faith to come into the promised land. And I think that's where we're at. God is, I mean, we're getting to be a time where you cannot survive spiritually and emotionally and in all sorts of other ways if you aren't really trusting in God and doing things God's way. If you're doing things the world's way, this, you're not going to survive spiritually. If you're doing things God's way and trusting in him and nothing else, then you'll have enough faith to be saved. And so here we go again. The, the question God asks is, how long will it be ere they believe me? So we have to ask ourselves, how do we do that? None of us are at Kadesh Barnia saying, ooh, the people inside there are too big for us. We're not going to go in. But plenty of us are saying, I'm not so sure God can exalt me there are some pretty big obstacles in front of my being exalted. And realistically, without God's help, we can't be exalted. Death and hell are like big guys and big walls. So are my favorite sins. Right? And this is part of the problem. Sometimes we look around and we say, okay, God will be able to exalt that person. He's a pretty good person. That woman, she does all sorts of great things. I'll exalt her. But I don't know if, I don't think he can exalt me. And part of the reason we struggle with that is because we know our own sin so well, and we know our own intent so well. Think about that. We, we know that sometimes, even when we're doing the right thing, we're not doing it fully for the right reason, and sometimes completely for the wrong reason. We, we know that. We don't know that about anyone else, but we know it about ourselves. And I think that's part of what makes it difficult for us to believe that God could exalt him. Uh, one time I was when I lived in Los Angeles, the State presidency did a, a survey and they did this in and Relief Society. So at the end of three hours, uh, the only people who are still there are people who are fairly active. Right. And, um, and in the survey asked if the people believed that they would be exalted. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but I, it seems to me like it was 30 uh, percent said, no, I don't think I'll be exalted. Now, that's interesting because God has said that everyone who has made a covenant and is trying to keep it, he will exalt. If they believe on him or believe him, he will exalt them. And yet a third of people were saying, no, I don't think he can or he will. Uh, and this is just not believing God. God says he can exalt us. He sent his son to make it possible. And yet somehow we think that our imperfections and our sins are more powerful than his son's atoning power. We think we can overpower the atonement. I think, well, not me, but I mean, sometimes me, we all. So let's, I'll just speak as if it is me. It's sometimes that we will think that our ability to be ding dongs is more powerful than Christ's ability to change us. Our ability to sin. And to keep going back to the same sin is more powerful than Christ's ability to change us. And I'm here to tell you that is wrong. Just like God was able to bring the walls of Jericho tumbling down to deal with the big people in the promised land. Just like he was able to deal with the Egyptians. He can deal with my ding-donginess, with my ability to sin, with my pride, with my sometimes... Um, not true intent, uh, and with all of those things, I am not capable of being so stupid and so ding-dongy that God can't redeem me and exalt me. I just don't have that capacity, and neither do you. None of us are so good at being fallen beings that we're beyond the reach of Christ's atoning power. None of us. He can exalt all of us. And he promises that he will. He's covenanted with us that he will if we will just try, if we will just keep coming back to him and believe him and believe on him and believe on his son. That's it. We have to just keep coming back. Now, I'm not saying go out and sin all you want uh, or anything along those lines, but we have to keep coming back to him and believe him. Problem is, too often we don't. And I think this is part of why we have so much anxiety and depression and all sorts of other things because we don't believe that He really will exalt us. And we don't believe that He really will have in store for us more joy than we could ever imagine, that He can make us into the kinds of beings that experience that kind of joy. But believe me, it's true. He can believe in Christ and believe Christ that he will exalt us. Let's learn a lesson from our Israelite ancestors and not make that same mistake. Let's not say no. Those obstacles are too big for us. My own self, my own nature is too big of an obstacle for Christ. That is not true. Christ can change you and he will change you. If you will, but let him, if you are willing, he is able Let me say that again. If you are willing, he is able. He can and will exalt you. He can bring you into the true promised land. And of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.